I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail I'm sitting right next to a pretty flooded stream in central Auckland in an area that's surrounded really by state housing and this is a pretty special project. Yes the stream is flooded but the banks are planted in mostly natives and there's little features around here that are pretty special. There's a fallet over there and there's a footbridge there that leads to the local primary school and this is the project that is being highlighted at the moment as something that could be part of the solution to the flooding problems here in Auckland and indeed in other parts of New Zealand. This is what our future might be as a sponge city. But what is a sponge city and will it save Auckland from a repeat of this week's catastrophic flooding? Well, shortly I'll talk to Auckland councillor Julie Ferry about this muddy little stream and why it's getting so much attention. But first, Tim Welch teaches urban planning at Auckland University and heads the Future Cities Research Hub. He talks to The Detail's co-host, Tom Kitchen, about why the city couldn't cope with this record rainfall. It's, I, I hate to use this term unprecedented because it's becoming precedented year after year. Unlike anything we've ever seen before, a deluge that will go down in the record books as Auckland's wettest day ever. Some people would categorise this as a once-in-a-hundred-year storm. We'll probably see it more frequently, but we essentially got four months' worth of rainfall in 24 hours. An apocalyptic Auckland like you've just never seen before. How did you find out how serious it was on that Friday night? Well, I think it started with seeing uh, pictures on Facebook and social media of buses flooding with water. The Nongihanga, an Auckland bus driver, was labelled crazy for taking passengers through this. You are kidding uh, there's some dramatic footage of slips over roads, of uh, slips crushing houses. Bridges were destroyed. Oh, we can't. we're not going across that bridge. There it goes. <laughs> the decking attached to this home swiftly carried off with the land underneath it. Holy shit. I think we've got to go. Yeah. I think we have to go. And so part of that is because we've cut away so much of the natural landscape. Uh, it's been held up by some tree roots, by uh, rocks, but a lot of uh, it is just dirt that once it soaks in, it gets so heavy it falls over the roads. And that, that's a pretty dramatic and scary thing to see. Why do we not have the infrastructure to cope with the unprecedented, as you say, rain? Well, this happened to be a confluence of a lot of events, but there's a history that led up to this. So it really starts, you go back 140 years when we covered up all of our urban streams to build the city. We paved over them, put them in culverts or pipes, and then built our roads and buildings over the top. Uh, so we already have a lot of water underground running out uh, to the harbor. And then we add to that all the impervious surfaces and they're draining, all that rainwater drains from the impervious surfaces, from buildings, from roads, into catch basins, the little grates we see on each block of the road, into pipes that were built in the 1950s, really, and haven't much improved since then. 
and you can see uh, behind me the ground is already sodden and there's not many places this water can go. Impervious surface. Yeah, it basically means it's waterproof. So uh, we're talking about roads that are traditionally chip and seal. So we have gravel and we just put tar over the top of it. Tar is essentially a water repellent. We have roofs that are designed to hold water out, obviously. And we have driveways and yards that are covered in patios and other things like that. So everything in our urban environment is meant to repel water, which means it accumulates really fast in the places that channel that water. It became clear from Dominion Road to Eden Park, in Coatesville, the CBD, and out south, Auckland, had been plunged underwater. So it rains on our properties, around our homes. Where does the water go? Yeah, so traditionally we have a metal roof or maybe an asphalt shingle roof. It comes off the roof into the gutters, the gutters through the downspout. It goes out down usually a driveway or some other paved surface into the road, along the gutters into a, what's called a catch basin, so those grates again on the, on the, uh, along the blocks, into pretty old stormwater pipes, and then essentially directly out into streams if they're there and uh, the beach. And that's why we see things like beach contamination or water contamination around the city, because that's all unfiltered water that gets sent out into, uh, into our beaches. This, this is coming right around Auckland right now. But I'm not going to try any, any further. That's deep in there. And uh, I'll lose my bike. So let's get back to that stream that got one radio host so excited. Look at it. It's usually quite pretty, this um, little suburban stream, but you can't get through there. I'm on a bridge overlooking the stream with Julie Ferry. This area is called Wesley. It's part of the greater area of Mount Roskill. Yeah. What's special about this? Well, this is part of the Te Aonga project, which was done a few years ago, and it, it took about five years. Probably the planning started even before that, and it was all about renaturalising the creek through here so that in flooding events, uh, less water ends up on the housing and the houses and local businesses, but it's mainly housing through here, and also to um, increase the health of the awa, the stream as well. So there's two parks here on uh, the eastern side of the bridge we're standing on is uh, Wormsley Park, mm. uh, which pr- usu- used to just basically be a concrete channel f- and some grass and a, and a walking path. That was it. Uh, now it's got um, a community valet, it's got public toilets, it's got um, bridges, uh, and most importantly, it's got this beautiful hour through here, which is all naturalised and has a capacity to take a lot more water. And it's all in flood at the moment, of course, but a long way from breaching any banks or anything, isn't it? Yeah, and we've got Underwood Parkers on the other side of the bridge too, um, and same story with it being completely rejuvenated. And both of these parks have, used to be terrible parks as well, they used to be two of our worst parks. And now, well, they just, people didn't use them. Um, People, you know, houses are all built kind of with their backs to the park and and even the locals didn't use them very much. Uh, They didn't have any amenity. Um, They sort of had a scattering of trees but were largely just grass and then the concrete culvert, that the the, um, open culvert that the the awa ran through. So not appealing at all, really? No, and now they're beautiful and um, so much amazing, mainly native planting, some of which is specifically designed to deal with flooding. Just over on this side. Crossing the road now. 
Yep, just over on this side of the bridge. So this is on the western side um, looking towards Oaraka, Mount Albert. Mm. And so over here you can actually almost see, you probably can't at the moment because of the flooding, but ordinarily you can kind of almost see that there are sort of different bands of planting. And those different bands act as filtration for the water that's coming down from the houses into the awa um, to slow things down, to catch um, contamination and rubbish and all of that kind of stuff and just generally um, you know, make this a, a nice place to be but also help with all the flooding issues and the health of the stream. Is this a flood-prone area? Yes. Yes, so the project itself... Um, which was done, led by Healthy Waters within Auckland Council, uh, but worked across a number of departments and, and was politically supported by the Pukitapapa local board. Uh, the project itself was primarily about reducing flooding to around 80 to 100 homes in the area. That was the original main purpose of it. Uh, and it was fantastic that actually rather than just going, OK, what's a solution to this where we pipe the water underground and, you know, nobody sees it and it isn't necessarily that resilient, they actually took a really holistic approach and looked at these parks as multifunctional assets that have a stormwater function but also are really valuable places for the local community. And so how do we balance all of those needs whilst getting the flooding outcome that that we all wanted? If our city was full of this, would it be a sponge city? Well, this is, this is definitely a, a sponge city approach here, and there are more and more of these types of things happening. So Te Aonga Oakley Creek, which uh, runs from right near my house, actually, in Waikofai, uh, right through to um, come out to the harbour by Waterview, there's been a number of projects along there uh, to do this kind of work, and there's more coming. Is this the answer to our flooding problems? Instead of having booms along our roads, should we be planting all this kind of thing? In some places that will be a good idea and there are rain gardens happening around the place already and that's been the case for some years but having a really comprehensive go at it and working out as a city where do we need to put this stuff. A lot of new developments are happening with this kind of stormwater infrastructure, this secret or hidden infrastructure built into them. And that's the sponge city concept. The response from trans government was to mop up this mess and convert many of these areas into so-called sponge cities. Soaking it up, storing it and then releasing it when needed. A bit like, you guessed it, a sponge. Tim Welch reckons we need to un-engineer our cities. Yep, that's the very word he uses. So uncovering some of those natural streams, there's some really famous examples around the world in Seoul, Korea, in China. 16 cities were chosen to be part of the scheme when it launched in 2015, and another 14 joined a year later. The aim is to have 80% of these 30 cities absorbing and reusing 70% of rainwater by 2030. In Singapore, where a lot of these natural springs and rivers have been uncovered uh, with lots of tree plantings along the sides and native plants along them to carry the water, to absorb water as it comes. Um, And that creates a natural channel that's much more higher capacity than any pipe we could build to absorb that. Uh, That's just one of a list of many things we could do. Can you give me an idea of somewhere in Auckland where... It looks good and it it works. Yeah, there's two suburbs that fared really well uh, during this storm. The first one uh, might be Hobsonville Point, and they've purposely done a few things there to mitigate 
huge rainwater downfalls like this. So one of the things they've done is every house they built has to have its own catch basin for water. So um, I think it's up to a thousand liters of water of rainwater is caught from uh, the roofs and held uh, locally. So that reduces the amount of water that's running in the road. They've built over the top of most of their stormwater uh, pipes these uh, rainwater catch basins or tanks. So there's natural, there's plantings and gravel on the top of them, and it can contain uh, many liters of water, hundreds of liters of water that filter into slowly into the stormwater pipes. Um, and so, and then the other thing they did is they planted up to 10,000 native trees along the shoreline. And native trees are really, they're designed to capture all of that water and soak it up and hold it for drier days. And that combination of things kept uh, the neighborhoods very dry. So you're talking about Hobsonville, which is the other suburb that worked really well? The other one is Stonefields, um, and that's over by Panmure. And so what they've done there is create a giant floodable park, essentially. They preserved some of the wetlands that were naturally there and then built this huge park that's terraced, and it allows it to fill up with water uh, on a rainy event like we had on Friday uh, and fill up and hold just a ton of that stormwater that would otherwise be going into the pipe system. And that kept things relatively safe and dry uh, for those residents as well. But stormwater reserves were always, don't go there, there's a fence, you know. Mm. Now we're talking about, okay, how do we plant those out? How do we make those places that people can be safely at the same time as they fulfil their stormwater function? Has it worked everywhere that they that these sponge... Yeah, environments are. I don't think we have the data on that yet, to be fair. So, because I've been thinking about this and how we would measure this, because there was definitely O'Donnell Avenue, which is uh, just to the south of the hour where we're standing now, um, that's been really badly hit in the flooding. Uh, I do know that in the past, they've since this infrastructure went in, they've had a lot less flooding. Mm-hmm. But what we've had over the last few days has been extreme. And yes, we could do better, and we have to do better, and we need to build better like this. But whether the infrastructure here has made a difference or not, it's in this particular extreme circumstances, it's too soon to tell, to be honest. But we will do all of that investigation and data in due course. And there's definitely other areas where it, it did do the job, and I would say here it probably did reduce the impact. OK, because Nick Viger from Healthy Waters was a bit iffy about the Sponge City concept. Oh, I, uh, I struggle with the concept of Sponge City at events of this level. It's not that I don't support the concept. They're a great, uh, they're a great idea for day-to-day flows, but we, you know, at, at, at these sorts of events, um, every, uh, there's no water getting in the ground. You know, the rainfall intensity is so high that effectively every, every surface behaves as if, it's, as if it's concrete. And, and so, you know, the reality, that the, the answer to, to um, you know, resiliency here is understanding that there needs to be places for the water to go. Yeah, this will not be, unfortunately, the last time. I mean, we've had multiple floods over the last um, year or so. This area's done um, better than most in those, which is 
great. Uh, in the past, they've done very poorly. Mm. In terms of whether this is the whole solution, it's not the whole solution at all. We need to look at it comprehensively and as a network. But I would point out that if he's talking about, um, you know, we need places for water to go, which this is a place for the water yeah. to go and to be held and to slowly be released. And, um, you know, in a way, it's a natural detention or retention tank. Um, so I would say that, that, I mean, he'll be the technical expert. I'm just an amateur enthusiast. But no, the other the benefits of these as yeah. well are significant. What's happened over the last few days is going to bring out a lot of anti-development, loud and clear voices, isn't it? Yeah, and already hearing that, yep. What do you say to that? I think there's, there's two things to keep in mind there. One is that people have a right to a home and that they also have a right to a home that doesn't flood. <laughs> Certainly not on a regular basis. And we do need to get better at building, but some of that is getting better at building density. And some of the answers, you know, I I think about some of these properties that have a lot of concrete on them, and actually you could have potentially built on, say, a half or three-quarters of that property, half or three-quarters of the impermeable surface, and left the rest to be spongy if you went up. The other thing is that if we want people to be able to um, have lifestyles where they don't need to buy a car in order to participate, then we need to have more housing near uh, transport routes, near education, near um, employment, near town centres, so that people don't have to have a car. And what follows from that which might seem a little bit tangential, but what follows from that is then you don't need a garage, then you don't need a driveway, then you don't need a carport. And so again, more of that land becomes available for housing or for sponging. Wayne Brown, one of his comments uh, that's almost becoming famous over the last few days, says... Some of those houses, when, when you think about it, actually shouldn't have been where they are. The problem we have is that where the patterns have changed, uh, that houses that were, you know, this, this area was built mainly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, and, you know, at that time they weren't thinking about this stuff. You know, they didn't have these kinds of issues. Uh, and now we do. How do we retrofit? That's a really hard question, um, and it's something we're going to have to basically have a bit of a reckoning with. Well, um, I don't always agree with everything uh, the mayor says, but in this case, from a logical point of view of urban planning, we'd have consistently built things where we probably shouldn't build them. Uh, They're done now, though. We can't ask people to leave their houses, but we kind of owe it to these people and to future generations to do everything we can to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. So many people live in areas that have been badly affected and they might want to go back to living there. How can we make sure those areas aren't flooded as badly again? Areas like West Auckland uh, have essentially been built on wetlands, so areas that were naturally flooding before there was anything there. Uh, So there's two things we can do. We can try to shore up those areas, uh, make sure that water doesn't intrude as much by building up a lot of the sponge city concept and just slow down the amount of water that would naturally go there, or we can retreat. And that may be, for some people, the only option, which is to unbuild our housing, unbuild our neighborhoods, and move back. So we would like to be able to get out of these properties and get somewhere safe. So obviously we can't sell them because we wouldn't want anybody else living in here. Um, so yeah, we really want the council to buy our properties back and um, and demolish them. Yeah, we just can't keep doing this. We've had um, like eight floods in seven years. So yeah, we're getting pretty sick of it.
the old Waitakere city, which was an eco-city, they did a whole lot of work um, around a project called Twin Streams, which acknowledged that actually in some cases council might need to buy some properties where housing was in the wrong place in order to manage flood overflows and to renaturalise streams and to get that work going. So there is some precedent for it potentially. Um, yeah, I don't want to give anybody You're an expectation. Yeah, basically, yeah. and that's certainly what we're going to have to do around the coast. There's a lot of old old neighbourhoods and old suburbs in Auckland that are being hit now because they've been built on flood zones and what whatnot. What do you do with these established old houses and some really nice little suburbs? Yeah, and a lot of it's going to be how do we maintain community connection through change. That's going to be really important. Um, and I think one of the challenges there is that, you know, in a, in a way we have an advantage in, in this community here in Wesley that almost all of the housing, or something like 80%, is owned by Kainga Ora, so they yeah. can comprehensively redevelop it. So how is council going to take a lead in saying, actually, let's come up for a, a, with a redevelopment plan for your suburb, um, acknowledging that actually there's a whole lot of private owners here and there's, you know, landlords who are renting and, and there's some... You know, it's not it's not straightforward because there's not a um, a single landowner that you're dealing with. That's going to be really hard, and I think we need to look at it. How we do it, I don't have an answer. It's going to take a lot of collective effort. There's no silver bullet. Uh, not one. There's not one thing that can stop flooding altogether. But it's certainly one tool in um, a larger infrastructure development process. If we look at examples like Singapore, a place that normally gets two or can get 200 millimeters of rain in a single day, so not much less than what we got on Friday, it doesn't flood much anymore. In the 60s and 70s, it it flooded a lot, but they've embraced this idea of having open water and parks that are floodable, uh, ground trees that absorb all this water, and they've also built the infrastructure for storm water. So this combination has kept the city safe from flooding. We still obviously need roads and we still need houses. Are there different materials we can use for them rather than what we've used in the past? Yeah, engineering's come a long way in the last few decades in finding solutions for our kind of impermeable surfaces. So we definitely can use roading material and car park surfaces that allow water to drain through. So it's just kind of called porous cement is usually the term that's used. And so we kind of build up the underbed of that infrastructure with more gravel and, and allow the water to come through. So, yeah, what does this mean for the future of our cities? Will we have to rebuild everything sooner rather than later? Yeah, we spend a lot of time when we talk about climate change, about mitigation. So how do we reduce our emissions? How do we stop climate change? And the stark reality is that we're pretty locked into some level of climate change. It's coming. So the word we use now is adaptation. We have to figure out how to make our cities stronger and more resilient against the climbing, uh, changing climate. Hello. Hello, ladies. Uh, we're just. Oh, we're doing. A, um, I'm doing an interview with Julie about this project. Yeah. Right. Which is amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. 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 We love it. We really enjoy it. And how it's, it's been. Yeah. Good. In these last few days, because it's drawn all the water. Yeah. But and just the contract we were saying about the weather, and um, you know, obviously it was pretty flooded in other parts of it. But we live in the community, so it's great for us for walking. <laughs>
Why do you have a sort of a spiritual feeling when you come here? I've thought about that quite a lot, and part of it is because I know what it used to be like before. And so when I come through here, I have the new overlaying the old, and I feel a sense of, I guess, pride and connection that through the work of many, many people, not least the local community, this is now here instead of what was here before. What I think the main thing for me is, is actually the sound of the water. Being able to hear the water as it flows, as it riffles through. And that's the thing with the culverts, you can't hear the water. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. William Saunders engineered today's episode and our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Julie Ferry and Tim Welch. Kakite.